0: Paul says Colossians 3 chapter 1 or excuse me verse 1 If then you were raised with Christ seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God set your mind on things above not on things of the earth for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is our life appears then you also will appear with him in glory and father we just humbly pause and ask for as always just the the supernatural help of your holy spirit to be able to have an ear to hear what your spirit wants to say to this part of your church that's assembled here tonight lord we thank you that you're with us and and jesus even as you were once here on this earth and would walk and stand in the midst of groups of people and would speak to them about the things of the kingdom of God. We, we pray, Lord, as you are alive and with us, though we may not see you with the eye, Lord, we believe that when two or three gather, you are in the midst. So we ask that you would be our teacher tonight, that by your spirit you would speak to us the things you would have us to hear from this particular passage of your word that your spirit inspired for us. Lord, take away the hindrances in our minds, even the weakness of our body. Lord, we brought ourselves to this place. So would you strengthen us with might and power by your spirit in the inward man. Lord, quicken us, give us the physical strength, the mental alertness, and just the spiritual sensitivity to hear what you would say to us through your word this night that we might receive the things that you need to speak to our hearts as we continue now in our time of worship of you. And we ask these things together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. And I think you would agree that as we look at our culture right now, and certainly where we see ourselves going in our country, would you agree that it's pretty obvious that we are in what I would call quite an identity crisis? that there are a lot of people that are very confused in regards to what identity they are supposed to be and what is right and what is wrong regarding identity. Of course, with the whole male-female gender issue and our bathroom complications we have going on now, and you know, we could sit here and complain and talk about that certainly an infinitum for the next hour, I suppose. But in one sense, as I think about that, it doesn't completely surprise me Uh, that the unsaved world is confused about their identity but I think something that at times we have to be careful of among the church is when we start to become confused about our identity and sometimes the church can be confused about who we're really supposed to be and and what we are and what we're not Uh, and I think Christians sometimes can be confused about their identity even sometimes to an extent forget their identity and because of that there are places in the word of God where we have passages like Colossians chapter 3 that seek to almost somewhat remind us of what our spiritual identity is because the truth of the matter is is if you are if you are confused about what your identity is it's going to have a drastic effect upon the way that you live your life how you think your desires your behavior but if you know who you are then you'll act according to your identity if you understand what your identity is. If you don't understand your identity, you begin to act in counterproductive ways that really are very, very detrimental and and here the bible speaks to us of our identity in christ and it talks to us about those realities and in some ways speaks of how our lives have been joined to be one with christ and so therefore in light of that paul saying we should live according to what our spiritual identity now is that that our our practice spiritually should line up more and more with our position spiritually I guess one of the ways we can illustrate it is in this capacity. The Bible speaks many different ways of using metaphors of our spiritual life, that we're children of God and God is our Father. It also uses the uh, spiritual metaphor of of how we are the bride of Christ and Jesus is our groom. The idea of picturing our spiritual life and our relationship with Jesus like a love relationship between a husband and a wife. The Bible tells us in Romans 7 and Paul talks to the Corinthians about how we're, we're married. Married in essence to Christ, that it's like a marriage relationship. And I can tell you this, I've been married for over 21 years now. My wife and I, when we chose to get married and enter into that relationship, our identity changed. Her identity changed even in regards to she took a different name. Uh, Who who she was prior to that time, Trisha May Lackey, in a sense, was covered over and, and now she's Trisha May Montemuro. And she took a different identity in her name. But our identity also changed in the sense that now we're a husband and now we're a wife. And if we were to continue after we were married to behave like we were unmarried, that would cause a lot of problems in the relationship. Would you agree? It would be something, quite honestly, that a lot of people would even look upon as a little bit odd. Wait a minute, I, I, I thought you're now a, a husband, that uh, you're a legal husband. You, you were married to your wife, and so you, your identity has changed, so you shouldn't live like a single man anymore. Do, do you understand what I mean by that? You, you live like a married person when you're a married person. This is an area where our culture is confused with identity as well, because married people aren't supposed to live like single people. And single people aren't supposed to live like married people. And whenever that crossover happens, you have a lot of issues and a lot of problems. Well, in the same way, we've been married to Jesus, the Bible says. So because we have been joined with Christ and united together with Christ... The Bible's saying we should remember truly what our identity is because that will then affect, it should have a great influence upon how we live out our lives every day. That we truly know that we have a new identity now. If anyone's in Christ, the Bible says he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. And that we are now one with Christ and in Christ in this positional place we have spiritually should then affect our practice and how we live out our lives. And this is really what these first few verses are particularly emphasizing here. You notice with me there in the first verse, as we read, Paul says, if then, and the idea there is, you could also translate that since then. The idea is since this has happened, if then you were raised with Christ, He says, who is right now, verse one, sitting at the right hand of God. He also mentions there to us as well in verse three, how we have died and our life is now hidden, it says, with Christ in God. So he speaks about how, again not in a literal sense physically we haven't physically died and we haven't physically obviously been raised from the dead and we haven't physically ascended up into heaven where jesus is is the right hand of god jesus has literally done those things jesus died on the cross for our sins jesus rose again from the dead literally a bodily resurrection and then jesus ascended back into heaven and where he now sits the bible says at the right hand of the father but what the bible teaches is that when we came into a relationship with Christ the day that you accepted Christ as your Savior and you experienced your salvation, you were born again then in a sense a, a a spiritual baptism if you would, just like a water baptism where you're immersed in the water and it 's a picture of this as you go under the water and come back up that you're you're buried and you raise again a new life with Christ that in a sense spiritually our lives were unified. Supernaturally, our lives were spiritually joined as we were married with Christ and we took completely a new identity spiritually before God in our position and the way God looks at us and who we really are. As Paul speaks about this in many of his different letters, Romans 6 addresses this idea of how that we, in a sense, share in the death of Christ in the same way that Jesus died for our sins. He also died to sin to the power of sin. And so therefore, as we share in the death of Christ, we experience the benefit of his payment in his death for our sins, so our sins are forgiven. But the Bible is also saying, listen, that old life, that's dead. That's not who you are anymore. That old person that you were, that old life, that life from God's perspective, now God says, that's dead, it's gone. That's why Paul would declare, it's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. The idea is Paul understood spiritually when Christ died for sin and he died to sin, I share in that now spiritually because I'm one with Christ as he's become a part of my life. And so therefore, I should reckon as true in my life that my sins have been paid for by Christ's death and also that I now should in a sense die to the sin nature. I should walk out of life where I live dead to the flesh where I don't allow the flesh to dominate and to dictate who I am anymore because that's not me anymore. That's the old life. And he says here in this text, talking to us this reality of how we died. That old identity, it doesn't exist anymore. So as a Christian, listen, who you were in your past and what you were in your past, you need to let go of that because that's dead from God's perspective. From God's perspective, that life that once existed is dead. That's not who you are anymore. You are a new person now. You're a new individual who he says here has raised with Christ. Not only have you shared in his resurrection, but the Bible even sees God's heart as so confident towards you and I that he is going to finish the good work that he started in you, that he sees us from his perspective spiritually, though we're still struggling out our Christian faith on this earth, and we stumble, and we still wrestle with sin, and we fail, and we deal with the sin nature. And, and yes, it's a battle. The practice is still a battle. There's an ongoing process of sanctification, but the reality is God is so confident because of your faith in the finished work of His Son, He already, in a sense, from His perspective, sees you by your faith finished, completed, and raised together with Christ in heavenly places because He sees that that is ultimately your eternal destiny. And he has that kind of confidence that even as we struggle it out here on earth, that he's going to finish the good work that he started. So what the Bible is trying to say, listen, our citizenship is in heaven. And since therefore you've died, since you were raised with Christ, who is now sitting at the right hand of God, he's saying in light of that reality, because you are now one with Christ, your life is hidden in Christ. That God looks upon you and he sees the nature, the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see your sins. He doesn't see my shortcomings. He doesn't see your past sins. He doesn't see your present struggles. He sees you righteous in Jesus. Then he's saying, listen, because God is so confident of ultimately what your destiny is and how much your identity has changed, that you are a child of the living God now. That you are righteous. You're a son or a daughter of God. He's in a sense saying, listen, live up to your identity. Live according to your identity. In the same way that I became, when I became married, it wasn't just a one, I now live according to that identity. I walk in that identity now. I act like I'm a husband, imagine that. Sometimes I think my wife likes it, other times I don't know if she does. But I always act like a husband because that's who I am now, I'm a husband. And when I don't act like a husband, that's a contradiction to the relationship. And as Christians, God is saying, look, you're a Christian, live like Christ. Your identity is that you should be Christ-like because you share, your life is hidden in Christ, that old life is gone, you've been raised, and so the power of the resurrection spirit of Christ is within you to help you to live differently. And so Paul says, in light of those things, the exhortation, verse one and two, therefore, since your old life is gone, in a sense, you're now a citizen of heaven, the Bible says, therefore, the exhortation, verse one Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, who is, he says, our life. And he says, where Jesus is, sitting at the right hand of God, the idea is seek after, let your affections and your desires predominantly be related to another kingdom, to the kingdom of God. That when you seek after things in this world, you would seek after those things which are eternal and heavenly. That our greatest desire, our, our, our strongest longing interest would be wanting to live in a way where we're rightly related to, to the kingdom of God, to heaven. That we realize we're just a foreigner here on this earth. We're on foreign soil, but we're citizens of heaven. That's our ultimate destiny. And so therefore we live with an eternal perspective. We live with an eternal desire. And when we seek after things, we don't predominantly seek after things that are earthly and temporal. Because we realize these things are passing, but instead we don't look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are eternal, that are going to last, and we want to seek after those things above. Remember, Jesus declared in Matthew 6 seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, the earthly things. Yes, we have to take care of them. But he says, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, because that's our truest identity. Then he says, "The other things they'll be given to you. God will take care of those things. It's not an an encouragement to be irresponsible, but it's an exhortation of prioritization that we understand our true identity, that we're not first and foremost an earth dweller, but we are a child of the kingdom of God, and our identity is hidden with Christ. We are one with him, we share in his life in all of who He is. So he says, Seek those things which are above. Well, how do you do that?" well he gives some practical advice in verse two how do you seek those things which are above well he says verse two set your mind on things which are above not on things of the earth it's a focus thing he, sa- he says let your mind be occupied with the things that are above rather than things on the earth think from a perspective that's eternal rather than earthly set your mind the things that you would contemplate what you would think about again what consumes our minds what's the predominant thing that we're always thinking about is is it you know i i got to get this and i have to accomplish that and we need to acquire this and we got to pay that bill and we got to take care of this and listen again the bible doesn't teach to be irresponsible the bible does not teach that we should not be practical and diligent i understand all those things but, but what God is saying is, look, what is the foremost thing on your mind? What, what is the thing that you set your mind to first? What is the thing that, you, that that is preoccupying your thoughts more than anything else? And he's saying, because of what your identity is, listen, when I got married, my mindset changed when i got married my mindset became that my mind was on how can i keep that beautiful little blonde-haired babe who i chose to commit myself to really happy and how can i do my best to take care of her and she's on my mind and it's because of the relationship and the identity and the love and he's saying listen if we're rightly related to jesus and our identity we should be setting our mind on things above not necessarily on things of the earth and this isn't natural This is something that the Bible commands us to do. Why? Because what do we naturally think about? Us and the things of this earth. There are some of you right now, as even as I'm talking, you're thinking about things of this earth, and your mind is somewhere else. You're listening still, but you're not listening to what God's Spirit wants to say. Your mind is, oh, I forgot about this, and oh, tomorrow I got to take care of that, and it's a challenge, it's a struggle. But our mind is such a powerful director of what happens in our lives. So God says, look, I want your heart and I want your mind. Seek those things which are above. Let your desires, your heart, your affections be for what's above, where Christ is. And he says, and set your mind on things above. The heart and the mind, both of those are important. That's why Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. It's a way for us to love the Lord with everything that we have. And then he says to us, verse four, and when Christ who is our life, appears. The idea is at his second coming. the Again, the manifestation, the, the second revelation of Christ when he returns for us. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You will experience the same glory that he's experiencing. I love the way that this reads. However, the Holy Spirit writes this out for us here in verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears again, we're one with him, we've been joined with him, we're united with him we, we we're married together and, and he says because of that Christ he's our life and in a sense that should be true in a practical sense. when I married my wife, she became my life and I have no problem with that. I wouldn't have it any other way when she married me as the as the bride I, I in a sense. I want to be her life. Maybe that's a little egotistical, but I do. I want to be her life. I want her life to revolve around my life's not my own anymore. It's a shared life. And, and, and I think with Jesus, the Bible says here, when Christ who is our life... You remember what Paul said when he wrote to the Philippians? Paul said, for me to live is what? Christ. To die is gain, he said. Because why? Because Paul said, because then I get to actually be with Christ. I get to be together with him forever. Get out of this sinful fallen world and the struggles in the flesh. And so he says, I don't look at death as a loss. I look at death as the ultimate gain because then I get to get beyond the veil and, and be with Christ who is my life forever. But Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Here he says, Christ who is our life. He should be our life. And when Paul says, for me to live is Christ, I think it's good once in a while to perhaps consider that. Take off the word Christ there and, and honestly put a line there and fill in the blank and really examine your heart at times as a Christian. I know I have to as well. For me to live is what? For me to live is, well, there are a lot of ways some, for fun people, for me to live is career, I gotta succeed at work. I mean, I got people counting on me and responsibilities, and a lot, and 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 you know, and I need to look professional. I need to succeed and be successful. And they find their identity in what they do. Maybe it's career. Maybe it's education. It can even be ministry. Ministers can find their identity in in who they are and 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 in what they do, and 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 that is that becomes their identity rather than no, my my identity is Jesus. I'm a lover of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. For some people to live can be whatever. It can be some habit. It can be some pleasure. It can some people for some people to live as entertainment. Or I mean, you fill in the blank there. They don't necessarily have to be quote unquote things that seem evil or even ungodly. For for some people, you know, to to live as their children. And, and some people actually can can we can idolize our kids i I'm raised and still raising at the end stages here as they're getting older you know and and that's possible as well where your children can literally become your life. I know people who do that. oh well you know we, we would we know that we should come. To church, but you know on on Sunday, Johnny I mean he has soccer games in the morning, and then he has you know baseball right after that, and you know Monday and Wednesday and Friday, then he 's got practice for lacrosse and this is that and and, and they 're running all these and and their kids are their life, and jesus isn 't their life anymore and listen, th- there needs to be a balance in that Jesus should be or like to live should be Jesus, and then everything else finds its place. Properly underneath that. And he says here, when Christ, who is our life, appears, the idea is he's going to appear. He's coming back again. We're going to stand before him. We're going to be in his presence forever. And, I, and, and then all of this that seemed to sometimes monopolize the, you know, the things that consumed our minds and the things that we were seeking after instead of seeking which are above and the things that became our life, then when Jesus appears, to whatever extent I've done that, I'm going to go, oh, shucks can you say that in the pulpit by the way hope so (laughs) stink oh lord why was i seeking after this and now you're back why was why was my mind so preoccupied with this and and now here you've appeared and i've lost opportunity there was lost time and so he says listen jesus is going to appear and when he appears he says you will also appear with him in glory speaking of how when jesus appears like first john three says that what we are is not yet seen, but, but when Jesus returns, we shall be like him. We're going to be glorified. We'll be made completely Christ-like as we get to leave these earthly sinful bodies and we become completely, in a sense, into the fullness of what our identity is as we receive our glorified body and we're in the presence of the Lord. So Paul puts this reminder to us of our identity that we are joined with Christ, one with Christ, reminding us how closely our lives should be associated and connected to Jesus in all of who we are. Christ should be our life in every sense because we've shared with the fullness of his life. And then he says, verse 5, in light of that now, look, your position, he's saying, my position, it should affect my practice and how I live my life. He says, therefore, in light of that, Put to death, in the practical sense of everyday living it out now, put to death your members which are on the earth. And then he mentions some things that come from the sensual, earthly, sinful nature. Fornication, it's the Greek word pornia, should sound familiar. It's where we get the English word pornography, which is a huge problem in today's culture and I'm ashamed to say, is a huge problem in the church. It is almost more addictive than heroin. And I mean, it's very, very, I mean, it grips the life of people and it consumes people and it keeps... People who even know and love Jesus in a guilt-ridden, dark, filthy place because it just controls their life. And he says here, that pornography, pornea, this fornication, if the term refers to any form of general you know, reference to sexual sin, but particularly interesting, it's the word pornea, saying these things, they have no place in the life of a Christian. They should be put to death, put to death that whatever it takes to kill it you crucify it you don't justify you don't say well i mean i'm only a once a, i'm only a once a week porn user the average among the world i mean three times a week but i'm a christian i'm only a once a week porn user god says no You should never be a porn user. It should not exist. It it does not fit in the identity of what it means to be a Christian. It's something, if it's there, it needs to be confessed and repented of and say, Lord, deliver me from this. Because you didn't just die for the penalty of the error of doing this. Lord, you also died to sin, to the power of sin, so that I could be freed from this. So set me free, Jesus. I don't want to live in this way. Help me to crucify this passion that is unhealthy. So he speaks of fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire. Those are all terms that are references when you look at them in the original language of lust and unclean and unhealthy desires. So any form of sexual sin, whether it's, again, Pornography, whether it's, you know, sex outside of marriage, whether it's homosexuality, what, whatever it may be, any form of unhealthy passion, unclean behavior, desires that are perverse, he says, these things, they shouldn't belong. They don't fit the identity of a Christian who has an eternal destiny and whose life is one with Jesus because, in a sense, because our life is one with him, we're joining, listen, we're joining Christ in those things if we do them see one of the things that's true about marriage when, when I married my wife and my identity changed one of the things that's going along with the package is anything I do I include her in it anything she does I'm affected and included in it and so as a Christian anything that we do we have to remember and it should give us at times a new sobriety in our thought towards any form of sin that when we participate in it because the spirit of Christ lives in you You are one with Christ, so you are joining Christ in those things. You're bringing Jesus into that very experience when you're doing those things as a child of God. So we see then how, man, this doesn't belong in my life. This doesn't belong in my life because Jesus is a part of your life. You're special. You're a child of God. He also mentions here not only sins of sexual nature, but he mentions covetousness, a form of strong greed. Longing for what we don't have, longing for what others have, coveting, you know, wishing we had what others had, and how many different forms that can take place in our lives to be covetous, to be greedy, whether it's a material thing, or we can be covetous because somebody has a position that we don't have. You can be a single person and be covetous because other people are married and you are not married, and so you can covet their marriage status. And there are some of you who are married that covet people's single status. But he says covetousness, this longing, this greed for for yearning for something that we don't have that maybe God has not given to us. He says, look what at verse five there he says, which is idolatry. It becomes a form of idolatry because it becomes something that drives us when we want something, what we want so bad and we're yearning for it. It literally becomes an idol in our life, which of course is offensive to our Lord. Look what he says, verse six. Because of these things some of the sins that he's mentioning. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. He says, in which, notice the language, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. That is when you were a part of the unsaved world. Yes, you used to live, but that's not who you are anymore. Your identity has changed. So this is how you used to live. When you once lived that way, which means we should be living different now, that's a part of what Romans 6 teaches. We've been raised with Christ, That says, so that we can walk in newness of life. This is the joy of being a Christian. You can live a new life. You don't have to live the way that you once lived. Wouldn't you agree it would be an absolute tragedy? Let's say, for example, uh, you, you found out that, uh, you know, let, let me paint the picture this way. L- let's, say that you, let's say literally you're homeless. You are homeless. You don't have a penny to your name. You don't even have a place to live or know where your next meal is coming. And you're homeless. And all of a sudden, somehow, by some amazing circumstances, you inherit the the wealth to become a multimillionaire. And now somebody's put into a bank account and in your name, the resources of being a multimillionaire. But yet, though you know that and though you've been told that and though it is absolutely 100% true, they even gave you the checkbook, with your name on it and everything, got you all set up. You don't have to do anything, but just utilize it. But you continue to live homeless. You continue to starve every day. You continue to wander around the streets and live like a homeless person struggling and poor instead of living and drawing on the resources of the new identity that you've received now as a multimillionaire. And see, this is kind of the reality of when a Christian, a child of God, chooses to live in a worldly, carnal, sinful way instead of living up to their true identity of having victory over sin and not living and participating in things. Look what he says, verse 6 there. Participating in things that are the very things that are causing what? The wrath of God to come. He says these are the very things that one day is going to bring the righteous, just wrath of a holy God upon the earth. And they're the things that Jesus died on the cross and suffered what? The wrath of God for. So why do I, as a Christian, if I don't have to, why do I want to participate in the very things that Jesus, my Lord, the Lover of my soul, had to suffer so much for, as He took the wrath of God upon Himself? Why would I want to go back and indulge in those things? Those should be the things that we seek to avoid as much as possible. He says, verse eight: "But now you yourselves are to put off all these things." Now some of you, the last moment or two, are saying, "Yeah, these people are in sexual sin." These People got pornography issues. I don't know what's the matter with them. Sickos. People looking at pornography, pedophiles, homosexuals, people having sexual sin outside. You know, these covetous people, I got idolatry issues. Well, God doesn't want you to be alone, so look what he says, verse 8. He says, how about anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, slanderous speech, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds, put on the new man who's renewed in the knowledge according to the image. Notice the image of him who created him where there's neither Greek nor Jews, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Notice that's not the identity that matters anymore, but what's our identity now? But Christ is all and in all. So he says these other identities that human beings concerned about, you know, Jew, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, are you a slave or are you a free man with free rights? Are you a master or slave? Socioeconomic status. He says God sees one identity. Child of God, child of the devil. Christian, non-Christian. Born again, citizen of heaven, or someone who's not yet saved and destined for the lake of fire God sees two identities two identities and and in Christ we realize that these other identities yes it's wonderful to have variety and differentiation and doesn't mean that we should set aside those things they add to who we are and what we bring to the body of Christ but we're all one in Christ and and that's why I think he says here listen don't miss the reality that these things we should put off just as much issues of our heart of our attitude he says as well we need to put off Again, the idea of put off and put on is, is like you're dressing. Put off the old, put on the new. And, and every day, what do you do? You know, If you're able to do, certainly, you know, and, and you want to have people like you somewhat, you put off the old, dirty, stinky clothes and you put on new clothes every day. And he says this is a part of the Christian life. Every day, we, we in a sense, we, we put off the thought of who the old person was and we put on the new man. We put on, Romans says, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and we make no provision for the flesh, Paul says. So every day I put on, practically as I live in my life, I get out of bed, I feel like a demon, just like you do. But I remember, I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. My life is not my own anymore. I have a different identity now. And it doesn't matter how I feel or... or, I'm a Christian. I'm a representative of Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. So I need to put off the old nature and the old ways because those things, you notice they kind of like reattach themselves to you like stains on your clothes. (laughs) So you got to put off the old dirty clothes again because they get dirty every day with that old fleshly nature and walking through the world. And you got to put on the new person every day. And so he says sometimes we need to be willing to, to set aside to put off things like Anger, resentful attitude, you know, upset, wrath. That, that, that's anger out of control. That, that's where anger, you know, anger is more of that, I suppress it, I'm, I'm seething underneath and I bury it, but I have resent in my resent in my spirit towards you. Wrath is volcanic eruption with the mouth and with the actions and just, you know, the exact opposite and just out of control violent attitudes, speaking and so forth he says malice that that's a term that speaks of having ill intent and a harmful uh, you know a a harmful attitude in your perspective towards someone where you have malice just you're wanting for somebody to hurt you're just wanting to see something you want them to get what they deserve that's malice where you have a sense that you want to see pain inflicted upon a person, maybe in some revengeful sense, malice in your heart. Blasphemy, which is just a term broadly that speaks of slandering. Slandering with their speech. Filthy language, any type of impure speech. Cursing. Speaking in a way that's just polluting somebody else's character. Slandering them telling filthy jokes coarse language you're just speaking in a way that God says that's just filthy you need to clean up your mouth and so again we look at these things and God says these are things that we need to continually be as we practice our position as a Christian putting these things to death I know for me it's a daily experience I die daily Paul says I'm with you Paul gotta put off oh man something made me angry again and before it becomes bitterness I gotta put it off because if I don't put it off, the root system is going to go down. Or catching myself, you know, speaking in a way that's just... Again, And I'm, not, I'm going around, you know, dropping F-bombs, but just speaking in a way that's, that's not becoming of what it means to be Christ-like. And the Lord says, you need to clean up your mouth. You represent me. You know, you speak in a different way. And again, these areas of our lives that we need to be willing to put off. Don't lie to one another again you know uh, misrepresenting the truth exaggerating you know telling lies well, why why shouldn't we lie as a christian well because the bible says the holy spirit is the spirit of truth and the bible says that the devil is the father of lies so who do i want to represent when i lie i'm representing the the father of this world the devil is the father of lies so he says don't lie to one another be honest and be honest in the sense of at times that's what's loving you know christians and sometimes are the absolute You know, uh, biggest candidates uh, of trying to couch, you know, you know, uh, dishonesty in love. Oh, I don't want to be. I don't want to be confrontational. I don't want to start an issue, so I just won't talk about it. You just started an issue. Well, I don't want to say something. I'm a wounded person, so I can't talk about. I, I just. I don't do good when I'm wounded. Who does? The Bible says we speak the truth in love. The two go together. There's no separation. You speak the truth because that is the loving thing to do. But when you speak the truth, you also speak it in a loving way, and you don't have to be harsh and nasty and mean about it. But both are necessary. So he says, don't lie to one another. Are you upset with me? No. Come on speak the truth don't lie to one another interesting he's saying these things to christians and even the way that we interact with one another but what should we do look at verse 12 and on last few verses before we wrap up here these these are just self-explanatory things the opposite therefore as the elect of god that is god's elected he's chosen you he set you aside you're holy you've been set apart you're beloved agapeo you are beloved of god you've experienced the love of god i've experienced so therefore what should we put on we put off the junk but we also need to put on who we are and live out our true identity what it means to be the wife of jesus what what does it mean to be christ like well what was jesus like these verses describe and therefore we should live therefore put on these things tender mercies being tender being compassionate being kind in the way that we interact. You know, rather than being harsh, the Bible says as a Christian we should be tender. There should be a gentleness about us. That we should seek to manifest the gentleness of Jesus. A tenderness in how we deal with people. Sensitive situations. That we have a tender heart that's sensitive and caring. He says kindness, self-evident, humility. That there's, there, there's a humbleness about us, there's not an air about us, we're not always promoting ourselves, or selling ourselves, or seeking attention, or, again, you know, behaving in a way that's arrogant or prideful, but that there's a genuine humility about us, that we don't need attention, we don't need to put ourselves we can just walk in humility, you know, again, servanthood. Jesus was just a humble servant. Meekness, and meekness is just power and authority under control. doesn't mean weakness. Jesus said that he was meek. He had all the authority of heaven and earth, but his power was under control. It was was strength under control, that that there was a meekness and a humility about Jesus. Long-suffering, which is a word for patience, but it also, if you just read it backwards, indicates what it means, that you're able to suffer for a long time and not retaliate wrongly. Patience or long-suffering speaks of that, that God is long-suffering. The idea is that we can suffer under unjust treatment for a long time, but we keep being patient in the process and we keep being loving and we keep being humble and we keep being meek when the authority that we have within that says, I could strangle you right now. And you probably could because you have the strength to do it. <laughs> but that you say, no, but I'm going to continue to suffer long and I'm going to be meek and I'm going to be humble. Why? Because that would honor Jesus. And and that's who Jesus would want me to be. And that's how Jesus would respond because that's how Jesus often lived out his life. These are pictures of who he is. Verse 13, he says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. I, I love the honesty of the Bible. Verse 13, bearing with one another, bearing with one another. English put up with each other <laughs> I, I, I love that God says there's a part of the Christian life is one thing that Christians should be learning to do that people in the world don't know how to do because they get so quickly frustrated and we're so selfish naturally in our humanity is Christians can learn in graciousness and patience and kindness and love to, to just to put up with certain things to put up with certain people maybe they're difficult people maybe they're growing Maybe they do have some quirks or weird things about their personality. I assure you, for every one person you feel like you're putting up with, somebody's put up with you too. <laughs> they just didn't tell you about it. He says <laughs> just, just bear with one another. Don't be so quick to get frustrated and angry. Oh, they get on my nerves. Just bear with one another. Oh, he's always doing they always say that, they always fail. Bear with one another. The idea is give some gratitude. I mean give some latitude. Let there be some little latitude and grace. They're growing. Maybe it's a younger person in the Lord. Maybe it's a younger Christian. Maybe it's a younger miracle. Give them some grace. Why don't they see things the way we do? Well, they haven't been walking with the Lord as long as you have. Bear with them. Give them some latitude. Give them some grace. Let them grow and, and mature. And he says, and not only that, forgiving one another and even anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, there's the standard. Can't get around it. So you ought to do, so you must also do. It's an obligation of the Christian life. It's a command of God in the Christian life. So bearing with one another, and then when offenses do happen, he says we are called to be forgiving. Notice not forgive. Forgiving seems to be a regular thing that has to happen, apparently. Forgiving one another and he says, if you have a complaint, something happens, and they do. It, we do it to others. Others offend us. Anger, hurt, offense, these things happen. We're, we're, we're sinful, imperfect human. But he says, the difference is that Christians, Christians know how to forgive. And they have the power to forgive Because they're receiving the power of the Spirit of God and the love of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus. And he who's been forgiven much then knows how to love much and show that love by forgiving other people. And we're able to give something that's not natural but supernatural. And that we then extend that very thing to others that we would forgive even as Christ forgave us. And how did Jesus forgive us? Freely. Freely. We didn't have to pay back anything. Well, I'll forgive you, but let's see. Let me work this one out. No, no. Certainly going to cost you a little bit more than that because of what you did. Jesus forgave us freely. Freely. We did nothing to have to earn it. It was a free gift extended to us. And he forgave us completely. Is it a partial forgiveness? It's a complete forgiveness. And it's a continuous forgiveness. And this is the forgiveness of the standard that by the Spirit of God... Listen, it's not natural. I understand. You don't understand. I do understand. It's not natural. But you're a Christian, so you live a supernatural life, right? Because the Spirit of Jesus is in you. The Spirit of God is there to help us to do things that we can't do naturally. And you say, well, I have forgiven the person. Well, let me say this. One of the ways that you can tell if you have genuinely forgiven someone, it is the way that you feel towards them will be as if what they did initially never happened. Well, I forgive them. I said I forgive them. But yet the way you still treat them is treating them as if they did what they did. When Jesus forgave us, when God forgave us in Christ, What happened is the wrath that God should have brought upon us and the fact that we were at enmity with God, that went away and now God relates to us, what? As if we never did it. God says, John never did that. I'm going to relate to John the rest of his life. Like he never did that because he's washed. He's clean. I'm going to forget everything that Rick has done. And so now when God relates to Rick, he doesn't relate to Rick. Well, you know, I I always kind of got this chip on my shoulder because that thing you did in 72. that just still grates on me once in a while. It just comes back to me. No, it's a release. And I would say this, forgiveness is a supernatural thing. It's one thing very easy to just say, I forgive that person. Even to pray, Lord, I I just... But you will know when genuine, spiritual, biblical, supernatural forgiveness has happened, when you can then relate to a person as if whatever caused the offense, the anger, the hurt, you can relate to them In such a way, behaving like it never happened. That is the extent, the supernatural extent, the miraculous, marvelous extent of Christian forgiveness. And let me say something. That is about one of the most wonderful things in the world. Because that frees a person from internal bondage. Because until you do that, it's like every time you look at that person, it's like drinking a 16-ounce glass of poison and hoping it really hurts them. It, it just its destructive. So he says, let this be the experience because of your identity. And the wonderful thing is, is as we look to the cross of Christ, we realize, Lord, I can't do this. But would you refresh me in my spirit of what you've done for me and what my relationship is with you so that then the supernatural power of your spirit can come into my life and you can help me to live out and practice what my true identity is, that I can live Christ-like and be Christ-like. Amen?